If we open the Holy Scriptures together to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter together and the text that we focus on is the last verse, verse 18. Second Peter 3, let us hear the word of the Lord. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water was in the water whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness." Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now our text. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this second letter of the inspired Apostle Peter to the scattered Christians throughout Asia Minor, brims with as much rich instruction for spiritual pilgrims such as we are, as much rich instruction as the first epistle of Peter does. First epistle of Peter is addressed to the same believers that the second epistle was, and it is addressed to scattered believers who faced persecution, to scattered believers throughout the region of Asia Minor, to give them instruction about how to be a pilgrim that is a stranger in the midst of the world, someone who's not at home here because their home is the kingdom of God, their home is the Father's house, their home is heaven, and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, and they are passing through. And the book of First Peter 
gives much instruction concerning how Christian pilgrims are to face and to handle so many threats and dangers that come upon them from without. Second Peter traces similar thoughts and has similar instruction. But one of the features of Second Peter is that it focuses perhaps a little more on the dangers that the Christian faces from within. Two of the main teachings of Second Peter, really the twin message of the book, is found in the last two verses which summarize the entire book. In verse 17, we find an exhortation to stand fast. That's really what verse 17 is saying, though it is framed in the negative. A warning, beware of the error of false teachers that lead men astray and lead them to fall from their steadfastness in the truth of the gospel. Stand fast in your profession. And then secondly, in verse 18, our text, the, the other main message of the book Grow. One of the main words that's used over and over in 2 Peter is the word knowledge. 2 Peter focuses on the true spiritual knowledge of the child of God and how that knowledge has a transformative effect upon the entire life and walk of the child of God. Stand fast and grow in the knowledge and in the grace of Jesus Christ. We readily see how both of these central exhortations and themes of the book of 2 Peter, how both of them are very appropriate for the occasion of confession of faith. And we will touch upon them both. But this morning we're going to focus especially on the second. The calling to grow. We will see how that calling stands in vital connection with the first. Stand fast. A brother who has made confession of faith this morning, Titus, you know Christ. And there's nothing more amazing and more precious than that, than to know Christ. To really know Him. That's what you've confessed before this congregation and before your family and friends. I know Christ, I believe in Christ, and I want to live for Christ. I want to identify myself with His people and share their joys as well as their sorrows. I want to follow Christ as His disciple. Confessing His truth in the world and bearing a cross and even suffering for His sake, though I know I am insufficient for these things, I need His grace. And so this passage, this text this morning comes as instruction and, as, and also encouragement to you as it comes to all of us. Having confessed your faith, what now? Confession of faith isn't the end. It's really the beginning. It's really the beginning. God has brought you to this point, And now as a member in full standing in his church. His calling to you is grow. Keep on growing. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at this text for a little while this morning. Our theme is growing in grace and knowledge of Christ. We're first going to look at what this is. Secondly, at how this takes place. And thirdly, why. What reasons we have. What motivations we have to strive for growth in grace and in knowledge. What, how, why. 2 Peter 3 verse 18 sets forth two things that are definitive for what it is to be a Christian. Namely, the grace of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to start by looking briefly at these two important things. Beginning with the second one that the text mentions. Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As has already been said. Knowledge of Christ is one of God's greatest gifts 
to His people. Without knowledge of Christ, we are utterly lost. Without knowledge of Christ, we are in the deepest darkness. Without knowledge of Christ, we are wandering in spiritual ignorance. And more than that, we are wandering in the black darkness of sinful unbelief, heading towards perdition. Without the knowledge of Christ, we are lost. But with the knowledge of Christ, we are found. We have light. We have life. Jesus said in John 17 verse 3, This is life eternal. That they might know Thee and know Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. This is life eternal. To know God. Now there are layers, there are depths to that statement that we cannot possibly get to the bottom of this morning, but let it... Be sufficient for us to see that there is nothing more precious in all the world than the knowledge of Christ. When the text speaks about the knowledge of Christ, the kind of knowledge of which it speaks is not any old knowledge. It is not the kind of knowledge that we so often have in this world of various things. A knowledge of facts and figures. A dry, sterile, lifeless knowledge. It is the true spiritual knowledge of a living faith that has been kindled in the heart by the saving operation of the Holy Spirit. It is a knowledge entirely unlike any other knowledge. Not in the sense that it doesn't have content. Oh yes, this knowledge has lots of content. Yes, this knowledge knows lots of facts. And this knowledge is supposed to grow. It is supposed to increase in the facts that it comprehends. But the point is, the nature of this knowledge is entirely different. It is a spiritual gift of grace. It knows facts. Yes, it knows facts revealed in the Word of God. But it knows more than just facts about God. It knows God. It knows Christ. We all readily understand that distinction, do we not? You think about someone you know, someone you are close to in your life. You know a whole lot about them. You know more about them than most people know about them. But what you know about them is really just the surface of what you know. When you really know someone, you know them. There is a direct knowing of the person. You have insight into their heart. You know what makes them tick. You know their thought process. Sometimes you can understand them by merely looking at them, observing their body language without a word. You know them. That's the knowledge of faith. That's the knowledge the text is talking about. It's talking about the living relational knowledge of love. Which is at the heart of the covenant of grace. That grand truth revealed in the Bible. The central truth from Genesis to Revelation. Is that God establishes his unconditional covenant with his people. He establishes it unilaterally through the work of Jesus Christ. And he draws us, his people, unworthy though we are of ourselves, into his covenant. Into a relationship of love and friendship. And now what is a relationship? The whole concept of a relationship has many layers we can't get to the bottom of this morning. But an essential part of a relationship is an intimate, personal, living knowledge of another person. And that's the knowledge of faith. That's what is being talked about here. It's more than the knowledge that there is a God. Satan knows there is a God. The devils confess God exists. 
When a believer confesses, I believe. When there is a confession of faith, it is much more than that there is a God. It is much more than that there is the God of the Bible, that He is real. It is much more than that there is this gracious God who worked salvation through Jesus Christ and saved some people. The knowledge of which the text speaks, the knowledge of faith, is the knowledge of a personal understanding and appropriation of the exceeding precious promises of God. It is the knowledge of one who embraces that God with a believing heart personally. Who says I know and I believe and I trust in this Jesus, this Christ. Not as a Savior, but as my Savior. Not as a Lord, but as my Lord. My Savior Who died for me. The shedding of whose blood has covered my sins. And earned for me the remission of them all. The Savior whose life of perfect obedience is imputed freely to me. So that though I am sinful in myself. And would otherwise be condemned. Yet nonetheless I stand before this God. This Holy One righteous in my Savior Jesus Christ. I am His because He has redeemed me. And He is mine because He gave Himself for me. And because He is my Savior, He is also my Lord. He owns me. He rules over me. He guides me powerfully. And I, by His grace, submit to His rulership. There is nothing I desire more than for the dominion of Jesus Christ to extend over every dimension of my existence. I belong to Him body and soul in life and in death. And I am sincerely ready henceforth to live unto Him. That's knowledge of Christ. That is what the Christian confesses. He or she confesses his or her faith. Brother Titus, that's what you have confessed this morning from the heart. Delve into those riches that you know here, but isn't just here, but goes from here down to here. The heart, Christ, is yours and you are His. Your Lord, your Savior. And there is nothing more meaningful, nothing more important, nothing more precious in all of your life than this. What you have confessed this morning, I know Christ. Hold that knowledge above all things precious to you. And stand fast in that confession. That leads to the first thing that is mentioned in our text. We've looked at knowledge, but now grace. Grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this grace? Well, we understand that the word grace, that concept in the Bible, has several layers of meaning. Grace in the first place is an attribute of God that is a characteristic of His divine being. It is who God is. God is grace. God's attribute of grace refers to the the spiritual beauty of His divine being. God is the supremely beautiful one. But now... As the Bible reveals God to us and reveals God by revealing His attributes, God's attributes tell us not just who He is, but who He is to us. That is, because of who He is, this is how He looks upon us, His people. Grace is also an attitude of God. And this is perhaps the the layer of the meaning of grace we are most familiar with. Grace is God's unmerited Undeserved favor to us poor unworthy sinners. Grace as that attitude then is also the power. The saving power of God. The favorable God exercises his almighty power unto the end. His end. The end of the salvation of his people. It is a spiritually transformative power that takes His people who are in themselves poor, lost, dead sinners. Redeems them. Forgives their sins. And works inside of them to refashion them spiritually 
so that they begin to be spiritually beautiful again. That's grace. But now the question that faces us this morning is what is the exact use of the word grace here in our text? And that requires us to understand that there is yet another sense in which the Bible uses the word grace. Sometimes grace, that term, is used to refer to the Christian graces. That is, the virtues of the Christian life. And the reason the spiritual virtues of the Christian life are called graces or grace is because they are authored by the grace of God in us. That's where virtue comes from. That's where every spiritual virtue in the Christian comes from. The grace of God. Not long ago, we had a sermon in the Catechism in connection with, and we looked at the Bible passage, Ephesians 2, and we took note of the fact that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That virtue, the entire Christian life, is the fruit of God's grace at work in us. And that's especially what grace here in the text is referring to. It is referring to the spiritual virtues worked in the redeemed child of God by the saving operation of the Holy Spirit. It's referring to the fruits of the Spirit that you read about in Galatians 5. It's referring to the new spiritual characteristics that are worked in the regenerated and justified believer. As the Holy Spirit progressively, day by day, sanctifies that child of God. They are the fruits, the virtues, that come to manifestation in the believer's life as God continues, in the words of Philippians 1 verse 6, continues to perform the good work that he began in us. Performing it continually until the day of Christ. And so in sum, grace here in the text refers to the Christian character and conduct. Which is the fruit of grace at work in the believer's life. It's called the grace of Christ because Christ is the source. All grace and all gifts come to us because of Christ. Because of what he has done for us. And all gifts and grace comes to us through Christ. And all of the blessings that he's earned for us are applied to us and imparted to us by the spirit of Christ. All grace is of Christ. And therefore every spiritual virtue in the Christian life traces its ancestry back to Christ who earned it who applied it who worked it in us and that's where your confession came from this morning Titus and that's why we give God the glory that's why your confession of faith is so beautiful It's the visible manifestation of God's grace at work in you. And now all of us think about what that is. When we confessed our faith. God's grace, undeserved favor, given to me, working in me, leading to the bearing of these fruits. What a wonder. Grace and knowledge. We've looked at those two definitive concepts. But now the last thing we need to look at under the first point is the growth. What this growth is. The text isn't just about grace and knowledge in the abstract. We've looked at these two things as beautiful gems and as it were turned them in different directions and looked at their facets. But now we need to see that the text is about growing in grace and in knowledge. Growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What is this growth? What does it look like? 
The growth that the text refers to is the increase of the spiritual virtues of the Christian life. Increasing in those virtues. Maturing in them. Growing more and more in those virtues. As the child of God lives in union and covenant communion with Christ his Lord and Savior. You see, the saved believer who is united to Christ must grow. Being a Christian, being a saved child of God, being a believer is life. It's life not of self, it's life of God, but it is life. And life is active, life grows. Life at its heart is relationship. And the truest, the fullest, the richest life is covenant life, relationship with God. To be a Christian is to be a grower. We understand, and we quickly dispense with the notion That growth in grace means you have to do a bunch of stuff to earn anything from God. Or you have to do a bunch of stuff to increase what you get from God. The way you turn a faucet handle to increase the flow. That's not the idea of the text. Our growth in grace takes place through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Working in us. We grow in the grace That Christ has earned for us all of the blessings and all of the gifts and all of the spiritual virtues. He earned for us at the cross. They are his gift to us and he works them in us by his Holy Spirit. But now we understand. The Holy Spirit works in such a way that we're conscious and active. We grow. We increase. Knowledge deepens. Spiritual gifts develop. Faith matures. Christian character and conduct is formed. The idea is that the spiritual life of the saved person is not like a stagnant pool. A stagnant, swampy pool becomes infected, foul, and good for nothing. And the breeding ground of all sorts of disease. There's a warning that we'll come back to. The spiritually stagnant person, his life will head in that direction. The Christian life is not a life of spiritual standstill or stagnancy. It's a living relationship with the Lord and Savior. A living relationship that is to dominate my whole life, pervade my whole being, and transform me such that I bear all manner of fruit, the graces, the spiritual virtues of the Christian life. Right at the beginning of the book, 1 Peter, we have some of those spiritual graces enumerated. If you look at 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 5. There the apostle says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And here knowledge refers especially to practical understanding, wisdom. And to knowledge, temperance, self-control, the the spiritual mastery of one's own self and one's own passions. And to temperance, patience. Patience with people as well as endurance of affliction. And to patience, godliness. Godliness is living consciously before the face of God so that all I say and do, I do unto Him. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, well, the chief of all Christian virtues, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is charity. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As you live in communion with Christ, that's the form that your life is going to take. If you are a branch engrafted into the true vine so that the life of the true vine courses into you, 
You are a branch that's not going to stay dead. But you are a branch that's going to grow. To increase. To bear fruit. Deepening knowledge. Richer measure of love for Christ. Intensified gratitude to God. Maturing in faith. Adding to faith a cornucopia of fruits of the Spirit. That's what the Christian life is to look like according to the text. And so ultimately what is this growth? If we want to take the cluster of Christian virtues and give them one name. If we want to take all of the fruit in that spiritual cornucopia and give it one name. We could give it the name Christ likeness. Ultimately, growth in grace and in the knowledge of Christ is increasing day by day in Christ-likeness. To be Christ-like is to be conformed to Christ's character. Or to put it another way, to have your character shaped and molded after the pattern of Christ. So that Christ's characteristics, we don't need to enumerate them all. Just think about what you know about Jesus in the Bible. Think about all that the Bible reveals about Jesus. What he was like, who he was, how he treated people, how he lived, how he prayed, how he worshipped, how he conducted himself. His character, his conduct, his inner life and his outward walk. So that all of these things shine more and more through you. So that as Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the express image of the Father, so we become the image of Christ, our elder brother. Christ-likeness. As Galatians 4.19 says, it's, it's to have Christ formed in us. Whereas Romans 12 verse 2 says, it is not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how are our minds renewed? Philippians 2.5, have the mind of Christ, think Christ's thoughts, think like Christ thought. Christ-likeness. It's really God's ultimate goal with our salvation. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto Christ-likeness, ultimately. Here, Romans 8.29, very familiar verse to us. Romans 8.29 For whom He, that is God, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of Christ. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what election, eternal election aims at. It aims at the conformity of our character and conduct to Christ. So that we, being refashioned by grace in righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge of God, we are image bearers of our Lord and Savior. That's what all of God's saving work aims at, and that's what all of the irresistible operation of His grace works in us, Christ-likeness. The final glorification of the believer in heaven, and the new heavens and the new earth spoken about in this chapter, what will that be? It will be complete Christ-likeness. Full conformity to the image of Christ. Having our character and our conduct and all that we are perfectly conformed to Him. That doesn't erase the distinction between Him and us. We never become Christ. There is a personal distinction between us and Christ. He is ever our Lord. He is ever our Savior. He is ever God the Son in the flesh. He is the Christ. We are only ever His Christians. Just like in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, they were his image bearers, but they were not God. In our final glorification, we will be the perfect image bearers of Christ. 
That's God's great plan. His great work of salvation. And that's what God is working here and now in the life of His children. He is working to make us Christ-like. That's what the Spirit who indwells us is doing. Working to make us Christ-like. Renewing those who have been redeemed. So that the Christian grows more and more in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. What a life we have the privilege of living. What a life Christ has earned for us. What a life we commit ourselves to when we confess our faith. Christianity is not merely a religion of the mind. Oh, it is. Very much so. But it is not merely intellectual. Christ not only redeemed the mind, He redeemed body, soul, mind, and strength. All of it is His. And all of it will be refashioned by His grace. And all of it is to be put in His service. Christ-likeness. Grow in Christ-likeness. That's the meaning of the text. And so that leads to how. First point, we focused especially on the what. What the knowledge of Christ is, what the grace of God is spoken about in the text. Especially, we saw that that refers to the virtues created in us by grace. We've looked at what growth in grace and knowledge is. But now we come to the how. And this is important because, notice, our text is not an indicative statement, though it could be. But it is an imperative. It is a command. Now, in the Bible... The, com- the command is always rooted in what Jesus has already done for us. The imperative always follows and arises from the indicative. But the indicative does not cancel out the imperative. Precisely because God has done so much for His people, we are called to actively strive and do so much in our Christian lives. The text says, Grow. It's a command. And more than that, it is a present imperative, meaning you could literally render the text, keep on growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Keep on growing. Don't stop. Don't cease. Don't hit pause. You don't get a break from this. Uninterrupted continuance from the day of your regeneration to the day of your final glorification Grow. Your growth in grace ought not to stop any more than your heart should stop breathing or beating and your lungs stop breathing as constant as your heartbeat and your breathing in and out. So continuous ought to be the Christian's growth in grace. This is a lifelong calling given to the child of God. Grow. Increase. Now we understand that that command is in the context of everything we've looked at already. It's not of us. It's of the power and the grace of God. He causes growth. But He works in such a way that we're conscious and active as we grow. Because people of God, you're not a plant. You're not a plant. You're a person. Plants don't have minds. Plants don't have hearts. Plants don't have wills. But you do. A redeemed heart. A redeemed mind. A redeemed will. Influenced and actuated by the Holy Spirit. And thus the gospel comes to us. And the gospel calls us. Grow. Increase. Strive for growth. You go back to... to, the first chapter of Second Peter, and he says, giving all diligence. Once again, the spiritual life of the Christian is not one of standstill or stagnancy. But think of all of 
the pictures the Bible uses for the Christian life. Run the race. Fight the good fight of faith. Walk the pilgrimage. Grow. Grow. How? How, practically speaking then, do we follow this command and strive to increase in grace? Strive to grow and mature in the spiritual virtues of the Christian life? How do we strive to grow and increase and mature in Christ-likeness? Well, a big part of the answer to that question can be found when we understand the connection between grace and knowledge in our text. Grow in grace and in knowledge. Oftentimes in the scriptures, the thing being emphasized or the end goal is placed first. And that's what we have here. Growth in knowledge leads to growth in grace. Now immediately remember how we defined knowledge here. We're not saying merely engaging in some academic study of the Bible is going to automatically generate growth in grace. We're not talking about mere head knowledge. Mere head knowledge is dead knowledge and dead things don't grow. But we're talking about that living personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. As the believer plumbs the depths Of Christ. Who Christ is. What Christ has done. As the believer meditates upon the facets of the diamond that is Christ and his work. The spiritual fruit of that is growth. Growth. My living knowledge of Christ deepens. My understanding of the wonder of who he is and the marvel of what he has done expands and is enriched. And with that growth in knowledge comes a growth in the virtues of grace. As this personal spiritual knowledge of Christ lays hold upon him relies upon Him, hungers for Him as the only bread of life feasts upon Him, my soul is nourished. And I grow. I grow. Spiritually. It's easy to see, isn't it, how this works in the Christian life. An example When the believer grows in this true knowledge of Christ. When the believer's perception and understanding of the grace extended to me personally by Christ. When the believer enters into a deeper recognition of what it was that Christ did for him on the cross. That deepened, that increased knowledge is going to lead to the increase of the virtue of graciousness in that believer's life. When our comprehension of the vastness of God's love and grace to us, when that comprehension is expansion is expanded, that is going to expand and enrich and deepen our love for one another. When I see how much God has forgiven me for Christ's sake. And my knowledge of that is deepened. It's going to prompt me to be all the more forgiving and gracious to my neighbor. But you see. If we think the Christian life is a spiritual standstill. Simply ladening our heads with a bunch of facts. And as long as I've got the right facts in the right order, I'm all set. We're not going to grow. We're not going to grow. The fruit 
of growth in knowledge is growth in Christ-likeness. So we can indeed say that how gracious we are to each other is a good gauge of how deep our knowledge of Christ is. How gracious I am to my brother and to my neighbor says a lot about how much or little I know of Christ. Because growth in the true knowledge of God and of Christ leads to growth in Christ-likeness. And so applications then, practically, how do we heed this command? We heed this command in the first place by being a people who are close to the Word of God. We hear that application all the time, and we can hear it so often that easily it runs off our back. Heard that before. But remember what the Word of God is. The Word of God is the voice of Christ. The Bible is the voice of the Good Shepherd. In His Word, God reveals Himself. And through this Word, applied by the Spirit, He furnishes us with that true knowledge of Christ, that head knowledge and heart knowledge perfectly connected. Our knowledge grows when we hear the voice of Christ, when we sit under Christ's instruction. To be a Christian is to be his disciple, and to be a disciple is to be a learner, a lifelong learner, sitting at the feet of the Master, like Mary and Martha at the feet of Jesus. To heed this passage, then, at the center of our life needs to be the Word of God. That's why we diligently frequent the house of God. That's why worship is important. Not because we know we better be here for two services, otherwise people are going to talk about me. Not because, well, it's a tradition and we better uphold it. Frequenting the house of God because I want to hear God's word so that I grow and deepen in my knowledge of Christ and therefore increase in Christ-likeness. Let all of us who believe in Christ and have confessed our faith, and brother, you who have confessed your faith this morning, make the word of Christ the center of your life, the rock upon which you build your life, the light for your path, the book of wisdom that you use to discern what to do when you make decisions. Let the word of Christ abide in you. And that word of Christ will be the food for your soul that will nourish you. Nourish the increase of faith. Nourish the increase of knowledge. And lead to that growth in grace of which the text speaks. That's the believer's life. Walking with Christ. More and more knowing Christ. And as I more and more know Christ. More and more, by God's grace, I reflect Christ. And so you see, this text, which is an imperative, a calling to the believer, is saturated with Christ from beginning to end. Indeed, every command in the scriptures is so. When held in connection with the gospel of Christ. Christocentric. That's what our life is and ought to be. Lastly this morning, why? Reasons, motives, things to prompt us in the heeding of the command of our text. Why? And we'll simply look at two things. Growth guards and growth glorifies. That's why. Growth guards and growth glorifies. Let's look at the first thing. Growth guards. What does that mean? And here we need to see the connection between our text in verse 17. Where the apostle warns the Christians to whom he writes. Beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Christians face a multitude of temptations. The temptations of the world. 
The temptation to follow after false doctrine. The temptation to live after the pattern of this world. The temptation to doubt. So many temptations. So many threats array themselves against the Christian. So many things conspire to shake the Christian in his confession. And the connection we need to see between 17 and 18 is this. One of the best defenses against backsliding. One of the best defenses against becoming more susceptible to temptation. One of the best defenses against being led astray by false teaching or wrong ways of life is to grow. Is to grow. If you're going forward, you won't be going backward. If you're growing, you won't be stagnant, festering, letting diseases brew. Growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ guards our hearts and minds and lives from the devices of the devil. Growth is one of the best defenses. There's a motive. Every time there's a confession of faith, the exhortation is given, stand fast. Stand fast. Brother, stand fast by growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, stand fast by growing, by growing. Growth guards and growth glorifies. And that's the last part of the text. To Him be glory both now and forever. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate reason. The last part of the verse is not simply a concluding doxology to the whole book. It is that. But it is closely connected with the rest of verse 18. Growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is unto the glory of God. Growth in grace and knowledge is what glorifies God. God doesn't glorify Himself by redeeming us in Christ and leaving us as dead sticks in the ground. On the ground, dead in our trespasses and sins. But he glorifies himself by picking up those dead sticks. And engrafting them into Christ. So that we're alive and grow and bear fruit. Growth glorifies God. Your confession of faith, Titus, glorified God. Because your confession of faith was the manifestation of growth. In grace. In your life. God was glorified this morning. Glorify Him. Even more. Each day. By continuing to grow. Growing in Christ likeness. Let us all beloved. Heed this call. Grow. Keep growing. In the grace and knowledge. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. To God our Father, and to our Lord Jesus Christ, be the glory now and forever. Amen. Faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for this exhortation of the Scriptures to grow. We acknowledge that we have no power to grow of ourselves, but are utterly dependent upon Thee. Furnish us with the grace to grow. Work in our hearts by the Spirit so that we grow. And make us, Father, by Thy grace, willing, active, striving people who seek with all our hearts to conform ourselves more and more to Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.